Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Well, prayer is surely, surely one of the most challenging aspects of the Christian life. Admittedly, I'm sure we all know maybe, maybe one prayer warrior who can easily knock out four hours of prayer in a room by themselves, just seems to pray for everyone all the time and have no problem with it and have this real communion connection. But for every one of them we know, I would suggest that we probably know 20 people who struggle to make five minutes for prayer, who struggle to pray for just that five or ten minutes. This, this is a common thing in, in Christian life. In fact, the... The renowned 20th century Welsh minister, Martin Lloyd-Jones, once commented that everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. 300 years before him, the, the Puritan teacher John Bunyan was brutally honest about his own prayer life. He said, as for my heart, when I go to pray, I find it so reluctant to go to God, and when it is with him, so reluctant to stay with him, that many times I'm forced in my prayers first to beg God that he would take mine heart and set it on himself in Christ, and when it is there, that he would keep it there. For me, as for myself, if I spent half as much time in prayer as I do thinking and reflecting and reading about Scottish football, then I would be a far more godly man, and I believe probably a far more interesting man to most of you as well, as I don't know that anyone shares my interest in Scottish football. But as we contemplate Prayer then, at the risk of sounding like a, a motivational speaker, I, I, want to, I want to take a look at why we pray in order that we might be encouraged. Why do we pray? There, there are many books, there are many sermons preached on how to pray, um, that we don't pray enough, but I want to look at why we pray. And just to, to clarify, this isn't going to be an exhaustive list of reasons why we pray, but rather it's going to be a, a look at some of the, the key reasons why we would pray, that we might be encouraged to pray and that our hearts might be strengthened. So to our passage then, and looking first at verses 5 to 8. Look with me now, if you would, at Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. As I was preparing for this morning's sermon, I realised that the last time I preached here at GCBC at the evening service, I actually preached the passage before this in the Sermon on the Mount. So I think at this rate, I'll be retired by the time we finish the Sermon on the Mount and move on to something else. Um, in that previous passage, we looked at how Jesus was raising the bar for his disciples from the Mosaic law, um, saying that really true obedience is in spirit rather than just indeed. The legalistic actions of a, a so-called believer aren't necessarily an indication of godliness. So it is now as Jesus comes to teach on prayer, while the disciples might have thought that a godly prayer should be verbose, laced with rich theology, should, should be full of clever language, Jesus is saying, no, a, a, a godly prayer, true prayer, is about relationship. This is the first point that we're going to look at today. We pray because God 
is a relational God. We should know from verse 7 that Jesus says, when you pray, not, not if you pray, but when you pray. It's assumed that the, the Christian would pray, that the believer would pray, because prayer is as fundamental to the believer as eating or sleeping or even breathing. To understand this, we should, we should look at the nature of God. So let's reflect on what Suresh read us earlier from Genesis chapter 1. All through this chapter, God speaks, the Lord speaks creation into being. Literally, his words lead to the creation of the world, the universe, and everything in it, everything that was created. Let there be light, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, let the waters be gathered together, let there be land, let the earth sprout vegetation, let there be lights in the expanse, on and on. God could have chosen to create through thought or through action, but God chose to create through speech, through words, through speaking, because speaking, communication is in God's very nature. God speaks and creation obeys. Even thousands of years later, we see our Lord Jesus speak and creation obey when he's in the boat. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus says, the storm is raging all around. Jesus says, peace, be still, and creation obeys, just as it did in that creation account in Genesis chapter 1. So God speaks to creation, and creation obeys. Look with me now, though, at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, and see how God speaks here. As he creates man, we read, for the first time of God speaking in relationship. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. God's created everything before this point by speaking authoritatively. But now that he comes to create man, he speaks relationally. Now we today, in, in, in our time with the, the full canon of scripture, have the, the privilege of understanding that God is three persons in one being. Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus tells the Jews in John 10, for example, that I and the Father are one. And then the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that the Lord is the Spirit. So we, we know that God is one, one being, but is three distinct persons. And we know that these three persons are in perfect relationship together in this one being. And now that God comes to create man, he speaks within that perfect relationship to say that they'll make man in their own image as a, as a relational being. More than that, in, in fact, in switching to the relational, God is saying that they'll create man and invite him into perfect relationship with them. That's what it is to be made in the image of God. Let us make man in our own image. That we are made, man is made to be in relationship with God. Just as God is a relational God, in perfect relationship in the Trinity, so we are made in the likeness of God to be in perfect relationship with him. And we see this relationship briefly in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, as God blesses man and he gives him dominion over all of creation. And, and even in Genesis 3, right at the start, when we see God walking in the garden, God has given man dominion over his creation, but he has come into his creation to relate with man, to be in relationship with man. This is a relationship we were created for. So we were created for that perfect relationship with God with no barrier 
between us, God coming into creation to be with and to relate with man. Tragically though, Adam and Eve chose to reject that perfect relationship with God and follow instead the, the false promise of being like God. So notice again, the three persons of God in relationship make man in their own image. Man is already like God. That, that's the irony here. When Satan says you can be like God, when the serpent says you can be like God, Adam and Eve are already like God. They've been made in God's image. They've been made for a relationship with God. But they, they choose to reject that to instead strive after a likeness that they could never attain. A likeness of, of being equal to God, knowing good from evil. So they reject that perfect likeness that they were created for, for a disobedient likeness that they could never attain. They broke the perfect relationship with God. As Willie puts it in his book, God still spoke, but they stopped answering. If you look at Genesis 3.10, God calls out to them, but they hide themselves from him. So the relationship is broken through man's unfaithfulness, and now sin and shame have formed a barrier between mankind and God, between man and God, where before none existed. It's easy to look at Adam and Eve and think somehow we would have done things differently, but we only have to look at our own lives and see that we don't. Day, day by day, um, we see in our lives, as Benoit was saying previously, that, that we sin that, sin, that we still sin, and that that barrier still exists between us and God. And that's because we've also strived to be like God, to determine our own lives, to be Lord of our own lives instead of submitting to him. So we are responsible fully for that broken relationship between us and God. I, I was really helped as I reflected on this by the, the illustration of, of marital infidelity. And in fact, God in his word uses that illustration a lot um, when he talks about the people of Israel and, and him and their covenant relationship. He talks a lot about the relationship of marriage and, and of infidelity. So, so when there has been unfaithfulness in marriage, when there has been infidelity, only one party, only one party, sorry, within that marriage can can begin restoration, can bring about restoration. So the guilty party can't just walk back into the relationship and say everything's okay again. We're fine. No, the guilty party doesn't have that right. The wronged party. The one who has been rejected, well, they must first forgive the guilty party and they must take on the cost of that forgiveness. And the cost of that forgiveness is setting aside their right to in turn reject the guilty party. Only then can relationship be restored. When that forgiveness is, has happened, when that right to reject has been set aside. And so it is with our broken relationship with God. As the Apostle Paul tells us in his letter to the Ephesians, we are dead in our sins, or we were dead in our sins. We had no way, no hope of mending the relationship with God. But in sending Jesus to take the punishment for our sins on the cross, to bear our separation from his Father, God paid the cost of forgiveness. And man is once again, if we trust Jesus, restored to that perfect relationship with God, with no barrier of sin in between us, because that sin has been paid for. Only through what Jesus has done. Well, communication is the, is the hallmark of relationship. And just as in Genesis 1, God the Father and God the Son spoke within the relationship. So, so we saw, even when Jesus was here on earth, that he spoke regularly with his Father. He made time 
for his father and, and they, they spoke intentionally with no barrier of sin in between them. And in Jesus' name, as in Jesus' name, as we respond to what he's done, as we respond to that invitation back into relationship with the Father through the, through the Holy Spirit by what Jesus has done, there's also now no sin barrier between us and God. So prayer is, is communion with God. It's the expression of this restored relationship between us and God. It's the outward evidence of that. God has invited us back into relationship. He's spoken to us through his word and prayer is our response. That's why Jesus tells his disciples not to keep up empty phrases that they won't be heard for their many words. The only reason, let's, let's not be fooled, the only reason our prayers are heard is because they're prayed in the name of Jesus. We're restored to relationship with God in Jesus' name and our prayers are heard, are acceptable to God on that basis. And private prayers that, that flow from relationship, well, they won't be, they won't be formal and aloof and cold. Rather, they'll be warm and heartfelt and relational. We just have to look at the Psalms and look at David's emotion to see that prayer from personal relationship is heartfelt and is warm. God called David a man after his own heart and we can see that from his prayers that they had that heart relationship. In fact, some of the most authentic prayers that we see, some of the warmest and most heartfelt prayers that we see can be some of the shortest, can't they? Help me. Thank you. Forgive me. As Matthew Henry says, we shouldn't be saying our prayers. We should be praying our prayers. Jesus also makes it clear that the Father already knows what we need. You know, as difficult as this might be to believe, living here in Australia, sometimes I find it difficult to make myself understood. Sometimes people just don't get what I'm talking about. In fact, on occasion, numerous occasions, in fact, I've had to hand the phone to Heidi to make sure that we're actually going to get the meal we're trying to order from our local Chinese restaurant. Or I'll stand at a, a retail counter somewhere asking what I feel is a perfectly, perfectly normal and understandable question just to be faced with blank expressions. So I do find it quite difficult to make myself understood here in Australia. Sometimes, even, and I'm not going to do it today, but I'll resort to a pathetic attempt at an Australian accent just because we need to get what we need to get. As I say, I'm not going to do that now. But not so with God. God isn't finite like we are. God's infinite and his understanding is infinite. And as Jesus says, he knows what we need before we ask for it. So to babble the same prayer in a number of ways, well, that's just to say that God is as limited as we are, that we have to find that more just, that exact word that we need in order to convince God of what we're asking for, or, or just to pray in exactly the right way that God will understand what we need, and then we'll act. Praise the outpouring of our acceptance that we trust God to provide us what we need, what he already knows that we need. So there's no need for endless repetition in our private prayer. Just, just humble honesty is what Jesus is calling for here. So we pray because God is a relational God. He's invited us back into relationship with him, paying the price of our forgiveness. 
And prayer is our response. It's the expression of the restoration of that relationship. And it's made possible only through what Jesus has done. Well, this brings us to our second point. We pray because we are sons of God. Let's look at verse 9. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus hasn't only restored us to relationship with God, but he has purchased our adoption as sons, hence our Father. When I, when I use the term sons, incidentally, I'm using the term that's used in God's word. Of course, we're all adopted as God's children if we trust in Jesus. But hence the term our Father. We looked a few minutes ago at the Apostle Paul's description of us being dead in our sins and, and in his letter to the Galatians, he also describes us as being slaves to sin. Adam's rebellion and, and the subsequent fall of mankind means that all of us have, are born in slavery to sin. We're born into slavery to sin. But praise God, we're not that familiar with slavery here in Australia in 2023, soon to be 2024. But 2,000 years ago, a slave had no rights had no way to determine their own future. Enslavement meant being bound to your master with no way out of that other than if he decided to free you or decided to sell you into slavery to someone else. The master could choose to release you or he could sell you to someone else, but there's nothing that you could do. You had no way of setting yourself free. Well, in purchasing our release from slavery to sin, though, Jesus hasn't enslaved us to someone else. He hasn't enslaved us to God if that were the case we would have no right to ask anything of God if we were slaves we wouldn't have that right imagine if you can two boys are working in a field the two boys look exactly the same they're working away in a field but one of them is a son and one of them is a slave one of them is the owner's son and one of them is a slave both of them look the same they're both serving the man in the field but one of them calls him daddy. One of them is his heir and will inherit all he has. And one of them gets to go home with him at the end of the night and be inside the house with him. The other, well, he's a slave. He calls him boss and he's his property. And when the doors are closed for the night, he's locked out. Many of us will be familiar with the parable of the prodigal son. In Luke 15, Jesus tells us of a son who rejects relationship with his father, asking his father instead to give him his inheritance now and then leaving the family to go and spend that inheritance elsewhere, effectively telling his father, I wish you were dead. So he spends all the money on wild living in a far off land, has nothing left and then when famine comes to that land, he is starving, wishing he could eat even the pods that he's been given to feed to pigs. So he decides to return to his father to beg for forgiveness and to ask to be treated like a, a hired servant, recognising he has no right anymore to sonship. But his father, as soon as he sees him, runs to him, welcomes, his in, welcomes him in, puts a, a fresh robe on him and puts the ring of sonship back onto his son's finger. So it is when Jesus purchases us out of slavery 
my friend in Scotland used to, to run football camps and he would use the analogy of a, he would give the gospel at the football camp every year and he would use the analogy of a football substitute uh, when, he, when, he talk, when he gave the gospel. So the player on the bench and the player on the field swap places and take each other's roles up during the game. So it is with what we call substitutionary atonement. Jesus took our place on the cross, being separated from God as we deserve, and we in turn, as we're brought to repentance by the Holy Spirit, well, we are restored to Jesus' rightful sonship with God. And as Paul continues in his illustration to the Galatians, we receive adoption as sons, and because you are sons, God has sent a spirit of, the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. In the next chapter of, Mark, of Matthew's Gospel, sorry, chapter 7 of Matthew's Gospel, still in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus asks, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? As adopted sons of God, as rightful heirs to his kingdom through what Jesus has done, we can be assured that God wants to give us good things. You may have heard of a, a father and son team, Dick and Rick Hoyt. They were inducted into the Ironman Hall of Fame back in 2008. Rick was born with cerebral palsy and was confined to a wheelchair, couldn't walk. But when he was 15, he asked Dick if they could do a marathon together to raise money for a friend of his who'd been injured at school. So Dick trained and then pushed Rick along in this marathon in his chair. And in fact, then over the next 40 years, they competed in 1130 endurance races, Ironman races, because Rick told Dick that when we run, I feel like I'm not handicapped. So Dick would run and push Rick's wheelchair. He would swim and pull Rick along in a boat behind him. And he would cycle with Rick on the front of an adapted bike that he had. Rick knew that when he asked Dick to do this, Dick would say yes because Dick loved him and wanted good things for him. Dick did all the work, but Rick felt like he wasn't handicapped. So he knew that his father would give good things to him and would say yes. Jesus tells his disciples, if a sinner like Dick Hoyt will go so far to do good things to his son, to give good things to his son, how much more will a perfect God and Father give good things to those who ask? We pray because we're sons of God, adopted and made heirs because Jesus has redeemed us from slavery to sonship. And we can pray with confidence because our perfect God and Father wants to give good things to his children. Moving to our third point now, we pray because God is sovereign. Verses 10 and 11 read, Your kingdom come, actually sorry, just verse 10, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There are many passages in God's word that, that make his sovereignty clear to us. Isaiah 46, for example, verses 9 and 10. I am God and there is no other. 
I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose, all my purpose. Perhaps though, no passage of scripture depicts God's sovereignty more clearly than Genesis 45 and Genesis 50. These are passages where Joseph reassures his brothers. So in Genesis 50, verse 20, for example, Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph's brothers got rid of him. They sold him into slavery with, with no other motive than their jealousy and their hatred of him. But God used their evil intentions and actions to bring about his sovereign purposes, his good purposes, making Joseph eventually prime minister of Egypt and ensuring that his chosen people would be grown and kept safe and saved from famine through what he had done. So there can surely be no greater example of God's sovereignty and of his command, his total control over his creation and of everything that happens within that creation. This can cause us a problem though when it comes to prayer or at least when it comes to how we view prayer. I remember preaching on prayer years and years ago um, in a church we were previously at and someone asking me at the end of the sermon, well if God's sovereign and is going to achieve his will anyway, what's the point in us praying? If he's going to do it anyway, why would we? Why would we pray? What's the point? I think this is a common question with people that are, are wrestling with prayer and with the subject of prayer. But I think it exposes an issue with how we think about prayer rather than with prayer itself. If we believe that prayer is a way of influencing God, of making him change his mind, or of helping, to, helping him to make up his mind, then I think we've got a really unbiblical view of prayer, an unbiblical idea of what prayer is. We're back there to believe in that we just need to find the right words, don't we? If we just find the right word, we'll convince God. He will understand what we need. Likewise, if we believe that God's somehow going to passively sit waiting until enough people pray to motivate him to act, well, that's not a God who wants to give good things to his children, is it? It's not a loving father who delights in giving us good things and who knows what we need before we ask it. The prophet Isaiah, along with many other prophets and, and the apostles, are clear that God's will spans from beginning to end and that his purposes will be fulfilled. So how do we answer this question then? Why, why do we pray? Why do we pray to a sovereign God? What's the point in praying to a sovereign God? Well, firstly, there's a, there's a couple of things, but firstly, why would we pray to a God who's not sovereign? Why would we pray to a God who can't achieve what we ask, who can't do for us what we ask? Well, he asks in his book, why would we go to 10 Downing Street, the Prime Minister of the UK's house, and ask the gardener to help us with, with some issue of state. He has no authority or power there. Why would we pray to a God who is not sovereign? That would make prayer futile. And, it would, and Jesus' brother James tells us that the prayer of a righteous man is, is powerful and effective. God is sovereign and prayer is powerful. So where does this leave us with our question? Well, let me turn again to, to Willie's book. His illustration here, I think, is the most helpful I've heard in this question. Let me just give you an outline of how he illustrates us. So imagine for a moment, Liverpool Football Club in the UK are 10 points clear at the top of the table. Now, you get three points for a win. There's one game left in the season. 
So they can't be caught. They've won the title. There's no grand final there. It's just you come top, you win the championship, and the prize is yours, the trophy is yours. So Willie actually uses Manchester United in his book, but for anyone who knows Manchester United, that's a bit too tough to believe at the moment that they would even be top, never mind 10 points clear. So Liverpool it is. So Liverpool are 10 points clear. Last game of the season coming up. They're definitely going to win. There's no way that they can't win. The title's already secured. You're a crazy, mad Liverpool fan, and Jurgen Klopp, the manager, calls you up and says, I want you to play in the last game. Even though we've won, even though the title's been won, that it's secured, I want you to come and play, to come and run out onto the field with the team in the last game. What an honour. Only a fool would say, do you know what? You've already won. There's no point. There's no point in me playing. It's going to happen already. You don't need me to play. Just go and get on with it. No. You would take that shirt, you would put it on, you would run out on that field with the rest of the team and you would try your heart out, knowing that victory was assured, knowing that you would lift the trophy with the team at the end of the game, but you would still give it everything because you love Liverpool, because you're a mad Liverpool fan and because it's an honour to be included and be involved in any way in that title victory, irrespective you weren't there for the sacrifices and the hard work that have really won that victory. Well, so it is with prayer, friends. The victory is assured. John the Baptist said that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, Jesus' death and resurrection has defeated death and sin and ushered in the kingdom of heaven for those who repent and trust in Jesus. And Jesus is making that call, inviting us to play in that last match. Inviting us to pray, play our part in the final act, praying joyfully that God's kingdom would come and aligning ourselves with his purposes. We will enjoy the ultimate celebration, but what a privilege to be invited onto the field to play in this last act, to pray that God's purposes would be done here on earth as this final act of his sovereign victory is played out. Well, just briefly on the next verse, your will be done on earth as there is in heaven. We've already seen that God's will will definitely be done here on earth. So again, why pray this way? Well, Jesus instructs us to pray this way more in relation to how God's will will be done rather than if God's will will be done. Question 192 of the, the Westminster Catechism is, is pretty helpful here on this point. Let me read. In the third petition, which is thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven, acknowledging that by nature we and all men are not only utterly unable and unwilling to know and do the will of God, but prone to rebel against his word, to repine and murmur against his providence, and wholly inclined to do the will of the flesh and of the devil, we pray that God would by his spirit take away from ourselves and others all blindness, weakness, indisposedness and perverseness of heart and by his grace make us able and willing to know, do and submit to his will in all things with the like humility, cheerfulness, faithfulness, diligence, zeal, sincerity and constancy as the angels do in heaven. We are unable and disinclined in and of ourselves to love and to do God's will. 
That's why we pray this way, asking that the Lord by his Holy Spirit would change our hearts, sanctify us, make us more like Jesus. And in that way, the way that God's will is done here on earth would reflect the way that it's done in heaven with joy and thanksgiving. So we pray because God is sovereign, because his purposes will come to pass, and because he's graciously involved us in the final act of his ultimate victory in Christ. And we pray because we need the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to change our hearts and make us desire to see God's will done. Now I know that time's ticking by and the, the more astute of you will have noticed that we're only two verses into the Lord's Prayer. Fear not, I'm not going for Benoist's preaching record here. Um, the last verses, the last three verses now of the Lord's Prayer cover the final point that we're going to make today. And that point is this. We pray because we are still sinners with whose hearts are prone to wander. Let me read our, our final verses. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The first of these verses, give us this day our daily bread, is an antidote to the sin of self-reliance. It seems clear that as disciples, our Lord's commanding us to pray this way every day. It's not give us this week or weekly bread, not give us this month or monthly bread, but rather give us this day our daily bread, asking on that day only for the bread for that day. To understand why it's helpful to, to look at a verse from Scripture with very obvious connection, con connections sorry, and connotations to what the Lord's saying here. Um, it's a long passage of Scripture. I'm not going to read it. I'm going to summarize what's in Exodus chapter 16 from verse 13 onwards. So around six weeks after the Lord has rescued the Israelites from Egypt, they've begun to grumble against them. They've begun to say, we were better off in Egypt. We had meat and bread there. Everything was great in Egypt. Um, short memories as we all have. Um, so the Lord causes quail to come over the camp to give them meat. And in the morning a, a Jew falls over the camp and manna from heaven is their bread that the Lord has given them from heaven. The Lord then through Moses commands them to go out and co collect enough bread only for that day. If there are a lot of them in the house, collect a lot of bread for those people in the house. If there are few of them in the house, collect a small amount of bread, but each of them will only have enough for that day and not to save any till tomorrow, um, but rather to go out tomorrow again and collect. But some of them rebel against God and save some to the next day and when they get up, it's stinking and it's full of worms, what they've saved. And Moses is angry with them, saying, why didn't you do what God commanded? Why have you rebelled against God? Similarly, when they come to the sixth day, they're told, go out and collect double because tomorrow's the Sabbath and we're not going to collect. There won't be any bread tomorrow. None will come down tomorrow. Collect enough today for two days and then go out to, uh, Then, sorry, don't go out tomorrow, but rest tomorrow. But again, on the seventh day, some of them go out again to collect bread, but there's none there. And Lord's angry with them and says, why or oh why? How long are you going to disobey me for? So the Lord provided manna for the Israelites for 40 years, he provided bread from heaven every morning except on the morning of the Sabbath. And they collected bread every morning for that day except on the, the day before the Sabbath when they would collect a double portion. And the Lord's, this was the Lord's gift of grace that the Israelites would 
daily depend on him. They would have a daily reminder or understanding that they were fully dependent on the Lord for everything. They didn't, they didn't farm, they didn't keep livestock, they didn't plant plants or crops. They had no way really of providing food for themselves. They were totally reliant on God, on this bread from heaven that he provided for them. What a kindness from the Lord over this period of 40 years to give them this daily reminder that they were fully and totally reliant on him. But note what was the first instinct of some of the Israelites, of some of the people. Firstly, setting aside manna overnight when they had been told not to. And secondly, going out on the Sabbath to gather manna again when they had been told not to. Both of these were against commands and, and both of them were totally futile. What was left over in the morning was rancid and there was no bread there on the Sabbath. But both of these are evidences that we, we don't fully trust God. There are rebellion against that trust in God. We're prone to look for ways to, to claim that we're self-reliant, that we can provide for ourselves. Yeah, sure, yeah, God sent the manna down, but it was me that put some aside for tomorrow. So really, it's, it's a bit of a joint venture. Yeah. Remember Genesis 3, Adam and Eve reject the likeness of God that is being in perfect relationship with him to instead pursue a different sinful likeness to God and being equal to him. Can you see that echoing through what we've just spoken about from Exodus? Man is looking to be equal to God and being self-reliant. Both of these passages evidence our desire to, man's desire to reject relationship with God, to reject obedient relationship, instead pursuing that equality with him that we can never achieve. This is the sin of self-reliance. And Jesus commands to pray every day for daily bread, for God's daily provision, in order that we would be protected against this sin of self-reliance, humbled every day to see our dependence on God. Well, when I first moved to Australia, 17 years ago now, I was embarking on a, a journey to become a missionary pilot. So sold my house and gave up my job in Scotland and I enrolled in BCV, Bible College over here, which is now MST. And as, as part of that process, I was going to have to live on support. So I had to raise support much as Wes and Emily have to do in their role just now. I can tell you from my perspective, it's, it's really humbling to come before people and ask them for money, ask them to support you. Um, it was a real, I guess, gift of kindness from the Lord and, and humbling me and, and making me reliant on him. But even, even then, even looking at this as a humbling gift from the Lord, I can see how self-reliance crept in for me. So if I go and speak at this number of churches and if I go and speak to these particular people, then I'll raise the amount of money that, that I need. I, 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 me, me, me. Taking God's provision through this gift of, of generosity of his saints and turning it into something that's about me. Friends, Jesus commands us to, to pray daily for daily provision that we might be humbled and kept from self-reliance. It's, at its root, self-reliance is the same sin, the same rebellion that we read of in the garden. We'll move into verse 12 now and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Again, again, there's another passage of scripture here that resonates with this verse. Jesus spoke specifically about this later in Matthew's gospel. Let's read very quickly uh, from Matthew chapter 18. <clears throat> I'll read verses 21 to 35. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king 
who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Excuse me. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The unmerciful servant is a hypocrite refusing to forgive a, a tiny debt when he's been forgiven a much, much larger one. We need to be careful, though, that we don't read into Scripture something that's, that's not there. Jesus isn't saying that the very second we refuse to forgive someone, we're condemned to hell. When I preached on Matthew 5 at, at the start of this year, I mentioned a committed Christian black woman from the UK called G. Walker, whose son Anthony was murdered by two youths in an unprovoked racist attack. Following the trial, um, G said to reporters, did I forgive them? At the point of death, Jesus said, I forgive them because they don't know what they did. Her words. I've got to forgive them. I still forgive them. My family and I still stand by what we believe. Forgiveness. Now I'm sure this wasn't G Walker's initial response when hearing that her son had been murdered. As with all of us, I'm, I'm sure she would initially have wrestled with the anger that comes from such profound grief. But the Lord in his mercy brought her to the cross and by his Holy Spirit turned her heart towards forgiveness as she looked upon the suffering servant who had paid for her sins and purchased her own forgiveness. I believe that Jesus, this is what Jesus is pointing us towards here. We are still sinners and even though our rebellion against God is eternally forgiven as we repent and trust in Jesus, we will continue to sin. That's why he commands us to pray for forgiveness. As the Holy Spirit sanctifies us though and changes our hearts, we will desire not to sin, not to be a prideful person, not to lie, not to have fits of anger, not to be unforgiven. We will stumble, of course, and, and this is why we pray for forgiveness, but our hearts desire will be that the Holy Spirit continues to change us and grows towards Christian maturity. So while the unrepentant person's life will be marked with an attitude of rebellion against God, against his commands, against his command to forgive, our lives should be marked with a desire to forgive and a desire to be humble, to display godly integrity, even, in the pra even if in practice sometimes we mess up. Our desire, our heart's attitude, should be to forgive and should be to, to, 
serve the Lord. This is why we pray that God would forgive us as we forgive those who trespass against us. We're acknowledging that both the forgiveness of our sins and the changing of our hearts are a work of God's grace. Both are a work of God's grace. Neither are of us. But we're asking him to give us the grace to forgive as we've been forgiven. We pray because we are sinners who daily need to be reminded of our total dependence on God. Finally then to verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There are many passages of scripture that talk about how God tests people. Psalm 11 verse 5 is a good example. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. Augustine said that trials come to prove us and to improve us. In other words, God tests us to show the genuineness of our faith and to strengthen our faith, making us ever more like Jesus. This is what the prophet Malachi is saying when he compares God to a refiner's fire who will purify and refine his people. God tests and strengthens Christians through the circumstances and the trials of life. But we also know that Satan tempts people. Look at Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 or look at Satan tempting our Lord um, during his time in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. Satan seeks to turn our eyes away from God to tempt us away from him, worshipping the creation instead of the creator. And these things aren't mutually exclusive. So, so God testing us and Satan tempting us aren't mutually exclusive. They can happen through the same circumstances, through the same pleasures or through the same pains in life. John, Pike, John Piper, I think, speaks helpfully here. He asks whether the pleasure of life and the pleasures of life will thank God and consider him better and whatever earthly pleasure he has blessed us with, or we will idolize that pleasure and not thank God for it. Likewise, in the pains of life, Piper asks whether we'll trust in God's goodness and wisdom or curse God. This conclusion about Jesus' command here, therefore, is that we should pray that in every test, God deliver us from it being a destructive, faith-destroying temptation, that God would deliver us from evil, from the tests he leads us into becoming the fall into the snares of the evil one. So we pray because we are yet sinners, vulnerable to temptation with hearts that are prone to wandering. So why do we pray then? Well, we pray because God is a relational God. He's invited us back into relationship with him, paying the price of our forgiveness. And prayer is our response. It's the expression of the restoration of that relationship with God, made possible only through what Jesus has done. It's not that we have to pray, but rather that we get to pray. We pray because we're sons of God, adopted and made heirs, again, through what Jesus has done, because he's redeemed us through his work on the cross, from slavery to sonship. So we can pray and bring our knees before the Lord with confidence, because we know that he has promised to give good things to his children. We pray because God is sovereign, and because his purposes and his will will come to pass and because he's graciously involved us in the final act of his ultimate victory in Christ. And we pray because we need the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to change our hearts in order to want to see God's will done. And finally, we pray because we are still sinners, prone to self-reliance and in need of the daily reminder that we are totally dependent on God's grace and his transforming power.
Well, as we come into 2024, my prayer is that we would be encouraged to pray, that our prayer lives would be transformed, that we would grow in our desire to pray and our desire to come before the Lord, that by his Holy Spirit, the Lord would transform our hearts, would commune with us as we pray, would speak to us through his word, and that as a result, we'd become more like our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great gift of redemption in and through our Lord Jesus. Thank you that you've created us for a relationship with you, that you've stepped down into the darkness of our sin and paid the price to purchase us out of slavery and into adoption as your sons. Would you draw near to us as we draw near to you in prayer? Would you make yourself known to us through your word that we might truly respond? And would you glorify yourself in our hearts that we would know you truly and intimately as our Father. We ask these things in Jesus' name, by whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. All glory be to him. Amen.